Please turn to Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His continuance was the, like lightning and his rendement white as snow. For, and for fear of him, the keepers did shake and become dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear ye not, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, and as, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, the, and he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples the word. And as they went out to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hell. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. The mystery of the gospel. So today we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'd like for us to read at verse 14 as we begin today. Of course, we're continuing our series in the book of 1 Timothy. And let's all say our theme verse of Timothy together. 1 Timothy 3.15 up there on the screen. The theme verse is, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And we're going to read this passage in just a moment. But as we read and as we have our message today on the great mystery solved, and that's the message today. Don't you like to hear a good mystery? Do you know the coming of Christ is, in a sense, one of the greatest mysteries? It's God's mystery. On how is the Messiah going to come to the earth? And how is it actually going to work out for Him to deliver the world from their sin. And so in a sense, it's like a murder mystery because Satan is a murderer from the beginning and Jesus came to deliver us from this murderous thief and liar. It's the great mystery solved. But when we read verse 16, and we're going to read it in just a moment, great is the mystery of godliness. I want us to hear the echo because it's kind of impossible for us not to hear this echo in that statement of Paul. The great mystery of godliness. It's hard for us not to hear the Ephesian city's bold claim 
that riotous day when Paul was in Ephesus years before this. Remember? They were crying for two hours. Great is Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Do you remember that? For two hours they were crying. Great is Diana. And so, as Paul says, no, Diana's not great. Diana's nothing, actually. Great is the mystery of godliness. Because God is great. And that's our passage today. So let's read today. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And let's read verse 16 together, please. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this day now, Lord. Thank You for the privilege we have to be in Your house, God. This is Your house, the house of the living God. And we thank You, Lord, for this wonderful passage of Scripture that does tell us that this is the family of Your fellowship. You fellowship with us because this is Your house. You are here with us. This is the place of Your presence because You are the living God. And this is the temple of Your truth. We are the pillar and ground of the truth. And today, Lord, we'll see that we are... We are stewards of this great mystery of godliness. So, Lord, help us to understand this passage and to live out these truths, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's almost as if Paul hijacks what the Ephesians were crying out. Great is Diana, they were saying. But Paul says, no, Diana, she's nothing. She's an idol. Great is our God. And great is the mystery of godliness. Now question, how many are crying out today that Diana is great? Who believes in Diana today? Who's following Diana today? Who's worshiping Diana today? Who? Nobody. And I showed you the temple last week, uh, that, that temple in Ephesus that was one of the ancient wonders of the world. There's just like one pillar left of it. Nobody's there. So... I submit to you today that Diana is as great today as she was then. And she was nothing, she's nothing today. And she's, she was nothing then. So it, it's a lesson of our world. This is what the world does, young people. It takes things that are nothing, and even less than nothing, and magnifies them into something great. And the next generation won't even remember that. But Jesus Christ is great. Yesterday, today, and forever. And here today, there's still worshipers of the great God who reveals to us this great mystery. So this is the temple. One of the greatest archaeological uh, things that, have ex- that has survived from this time. This is... This is where Paul actually preached in Ephesus and there was a great riot there in Ephesus. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19. And this is the, 
the, the, not the temple, the theater that, was, that is in Ephesus where there was that riot where the people were crying out, great is Diana. But in this passage of Scripture, Paul says great is the mystery of godliness. And he says without controversy. That means it's undeniably true. It is undeniably true that the mystery of godliness is great. So think about that for a moment. What is Paul saying? The mystery of godliness is great. In other words, who is the ultimate godly man? That's a mystery in this world. Who is the ultimate godly one? And then, who can deliver me so I can live a godly life? That's a mystery to most people. That's a great mystery. People want to know God, and they want to know how to live the right way for God. How? It's a great mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness. How can I know God? That's a mystery to people right here in our village. They don't know how to know God. How can I live for God in a way that pleases God? I remember when I was young, my parents on a vacation, we were on vacation together in Maine, and they took us to one of the Agatha Christie murder mystery in a play. And during the intermission, we were all talking, who do you think did it? You know, don't we like whodunits? You know, they're, they're always kind of fascinating because you, in the middle of it, you're, you just don't think you could figure it out. It doesn't make any sense. That who did? And so we were all talking about who we think did it. And I, I don't know if anybody got it right. I know I didn't get it right. But it was the police officer who did it in the end. But once you know and figure out the mystery and who did it, you're like, oh yeah, I should have saw those clues, you know? Because they might drop little clues along the way. And then once, once you know who did it, you're like, oh yeah, I see it now. So who is the ultimate godly one? Who can deliver me to live a godly life? How can I know God? How can I live in a way that pleases God? All of these things are a great mystery to many people. And this is the solving of that great mystery because it is all in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ solves the mystery. He's the godly one. Jesus Christ solves the mystery. He is the one who will come into me by His Spirit and give me the power to live a, a godly life. Who... The mystery of godliness is solved in the person and work of Jesus Christ because He is godliness revealed. And it's a mystery. It even says in Colossians that this mystery, which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now it's revealed in Jesus Christ. So the idea of a Bible mystery, by the way, is something that was hidden, but now it's revealed. But you can only actually grasp it when there's the illumination of the Holy Spirit of God. And then you see it. The mystery is Jesus Christ is Lord. Romans 16.25 says that this mystery was something that was kept secret since the world even began. So Jesus Christ solves this greatest of all mysteries. And I have those two scriptures there. Colossians 1.26, the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations is now revealed in Jesus Christ. So, you see, He solves this mystery of what godliness is. He solves the mystery. 
Romans 16.25, it was kept secret since the world began. You know, think about it. It's, it's like a, the Old Testament tells us of the coming of Christ, but in a way that you're like, well, how is that going to work out? For example, in Genesis 3.15, the very first promise of the Messiah, it says that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And it's like, oh, that's mysterious. <laughs> what does that mean, you know? Great is the mystery of godliness. And so the plan works out throughout the Old Testament. And it, as he says, it was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest. Great is the mystery of godliness. And then he says, God is manifest in the flesh. What a great statement that is. And by the way, God is an important now, in this text of 1 Timothy 3.16, if you have a more recent translation and it's based on other manuscripts, it doesn't have the name God in there. And I believe that is a great error. And it's another reason why I do love and use that, the King James Bible. And I'll just say this because I did a little research about this, but going all the way back to uh, one of the early leaders of the church, his name was Gregory of Nyssa, N-Y-S-S-A. He lived in the 4th century, in the 300s, as well as Chrysostom. They both quote from 1 Timothy 3.16 in, in the 300s and, and quote, God was manifest in the flesh. And, and so this is also quoted by as many as 20 early church leaders. So I believe God is manifest in the flesh is definitely a part of the text. Now, Many people see this verse. It's a very beautiful verse. Now, I just want us to think about it for, for a minute, and we'll get, then we'll get into it. But I want to think about the structure, if you will, because I know we have good Bible students here. Think about the structure of 1 Timothy 3.16. And the reason the structure is important is because the Holy Spirit inspired these words. And the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything out of order or haphazard. It's with structure and order. And this is ordered very, very beautiful. Now, there are six statements in 1 Timothy 3.16. And God was, in a sense, goes before all of them. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit. God was seen of angels. God was preached unto the Gentiles. God was believed on in the world. God was received up into glory. This is a very powerful statement that Jesus Christ is God. And that's why I say God is an important word in this text. If you take out God and you just say He was manifest, well, so are you and I manifest. But God is manifest. It's all important here. So, there's different ways that this verse could be evaluated. And, and by the way, the, I'm going to look at three real quick. None of them are wrong. In other words, you can look at this, this verse, and many people do believe it's an ancient hymn, and it's a fragment of an ancient hymn. Many people do believe that. I'm not sure, but that's what I did read, so I throw it out to you there. So you could evaluate and just say, this is structured in six separate statements. And it could be, but the thing that's interesting here. And why I don't believe that it's, that's the best way to look at this is because it's not chronological. In other words, the last statement is that he was received up into glory. And before that, it says he was preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world. 
So that would, in a sense, happen as well after he was received up into glory. So there, it's not a fully, there's not six things that happen one after the other chronologically. Another way people look at this is in two statements in each stanza with three stanzas. So there's three stanzas and two statements. So that God was manifest in the flesh and justified in the spirit. God was seen of angels and preached unto the Gentiles. God was believed on in the world and received up into glory. And, and that's a good way to look at it. I was actually leaning toward this, and this is perhaps the most popular way people would say this verse is, is, can be seen in a, in a good structure. But the third way that this verse could be looked at, and I'll be looking at it more in this fashion today as I have it outlined, in just two stanzas, there's just two stanzas, and each stanza has three points to it. So in other words, to look at it in two stanzas, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels. That's point one. And so these three points speak of his coming, his first coming, that he came, he was manifest in the flesh, he was justified in the spirit, he was seen of angels. And when was the last place he was seen of angels in his earthly ministry? When he what? When he ascended into heaven. And that's interesting because that kind of goes with the third st statement of the second stanza. He was received up into glory. And that's why I like this arrangement a little better because the last statement of the first stanza and the last statement of the second stanza both point us to the, the ascension and the glorification of Jesus Christ. I thought that was interesting. Another thing, another reason why I like this structure better is the... The, the second two part, the first and second part of the second stanza, in other words, that he was preached unto the Gentiles and believed on in the world, they seem to go, they seem to fit together best to me. And if we go back to the, 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 where'd it go? There it is. Okay. If we go back to this, it, if there's three different stanzas, it separates those two statements. So again, this is not a major thing. It's, it's not right or wrong how you, you see the structure here. But it's, I thought it was fascinating. That's why I'm sharing it with you. I thought it was interesting. And so since I'm the preacher, I get to talk about what I think is interesting. How do you like that? Okay. But I, I, I believe that God's Word is so beautiful. God's Word is so incredibly fascinating and ordered and structured. And God has structured these six statements to show us how the mystery of godliness is solved by the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's the main point of our message today. So let's look at it in two main ways. The first way we see His coming to the earth, and the second way we'll see His conquest over the earth. His coming to the earth is in the first three statements. As it says, God was manifest in the flesh. Now that's a Christmas text right there. He was manifest. And so I see in this first statement a celebration of His coming. A celebration at His incarnation. Because when Jesus Christ was manifest in the flesh, and the coming of Christ is the incarnation, it is God becoming a man. And through the virgin birth, God took on human flesh. So think of that and never get over the incredible miracle 
how the infinite God, which the heaven of heavens cannot contain, actually took on human flesh and was contained in a human body, even the body of a baby. Now, we're so accustomed to this great doctrine, we lose the immensity of it. But going back into chapter 2, remember chapter 2, it says there that there's one God in verse 5. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and one who? One mediator. There's one person who stands that if you're going to come to God, you have to come through Him. And who is that mediator? Jesus Christ. And the mediator took on flesh. So we can come even more easily to the Father. God was manifest in the flesh. And so His coming led to a great celebration in the skies with the angels lighting up that dark night with shouts of glory to God in the highest because the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.31 says He manifested forth His glory. And ultimately, the main reason why He was manifest in the flesh, because you can even see from the lowly manger of wood, you could see the cross from the manger. That His ultimate reason for being manifest in the flesh, if you could please turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, was to take our sins. He was manifest in the flesh to die for us on the cross. In 1 John chapter 3, this word manifest is used twice in this passage. And, it act, and actually, the epistle of 1 John begins where John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested. That's that word that we're looking at as well in 1 Timothy 3. God was manifest. The life was manifested. And we have seen it and bear witness. And then in chapter 3, if you please read with me verse 5. Why was He manifested in verse 5? It says, And ye know that He was manifested to do what? To take away our sins. Why? Why could He do that? Because in Him, there is no sin in Jesus Christ. He knew no sin, did no sin in Him, was no sin. And now go down to verse 8. We see again the word manifested. It says, He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. And please read the rest of that verse if you've got it with me. 1 John 3, verse 8 says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that He might destroy the works of the devil. So the coming of Jesus Christ was to go to the cross and bring a destruction to Satan and crush his head. To put to death the murderer. He solves the murder mystery by dying Himself on the cross for our sins. Man could not make this up. The Gospel is the mystery of God that has been revealed to us through Jesus Christ. The celebration of His incarnation. God was manifest in the flesh to take our sins upon Himself and destroy the devil. Now, if you want to be godly, Here's the mystery of godliness. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll see that. He's the way to live a godly life. And that's the whole point of this verse. Great is the mystery of godliness. If we want to live a godly life, is it going to be through our power? 
It's going to be through, through Jesus, the one who destroyed the devil, the one who took our sins. The second statement here in this point that in his coming to earth is we see the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. And this is the idea of what Paul means when he writes, God was manifest in the flesh and justified in the Spirit. Justified here speaks of the Holy Spirit. He was justified by the Holy Spirit. And the idea of the word justified is that the Holy Spirit proves absolutely that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. The Holy Spirit confirms. That's the word that I use here in our point. The confirmation of the Holy Spirit. He confirms. He proves. He gives absolute evidence of the supreme godliness that is in Jesus Christ that He is God. Manifest in the flesh. 1 John 5, 6 says, It is the Spirit that beareth witness because the Spirit is truth. So go please, go to Luke Chapter 1. Now, I want to look at a few verses very quickly to, sh- to show how the Holy Spirit justified or proved or gave evidence that Jesus Christ is certainly God manifest in the flesh. The one who re- solves the mystery of godliness. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 35. This is the virgin birth where the angel came to Mary. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 35... The angel tells Mary, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So it was the Holy Spirit who overshadowed Mary and brought about conception in her womb. Then look in Luke chapter 2, verse 26. We see again the Holy Spirit gives strong evidence Or He justifies, He proves the supreme godliness of Jesus Christ. Here is Simeon in Luke chapter 2, verse 26. And it was revealed to Simeon in Luke 2, 26. Who who revealed to Simeon something? The Holy Spirit. And what did He reveal to Simeon? That Simeon would not see death until he had seen the Lord's... Christ, the Messiah. So the Holy Spirit revealed that to Simeon. And when Simeon saw Jesus, he said, He's the One. So the Holy Spirit justified, proved that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh to Simeon. And then we move forward. Look in Luke chapter 3. And I know this is the picture here. What's this a picture of? It's Again, we don't know how all this looked, but this would be a picture of The baptism, when Jesus Christ was baptized, what does it say in Luke chapter 3 and verse number 21? It says, all the people were baptized. It came to pass also as Jesus was being baptized and praying. I like that. Only Luke tells us that Jesus was praying as He was being baptized. He was praying and the heaven opened. And what did the Holy Spirit do in verse 22? The Holy Spirit what? Descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon Jesus. And then the voice came from heaven, the Father, which said, Thou art My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So the Holy Spirit 
proved absolutely that Jesus Christ is the Son of God by descending upon Him at His baptism. And then look in Luke chapter 4. Just a couple more verses here since we're in Luke. Look at verse 1. What does it say here? What is Jesus' relationship to the Holy Spirit? Luke chapter 4, verse 1. What does it say? He was full of the Holy Ghost and led of the Spirit even into the temptation and empowered to overcome that temptation by the Holy Spirit. And look at verse number 14. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. So here He is empowered by the Spirit. He's filled by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended upon Him. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary's womb. The Holy Spirit is justifying that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. He's proving it to us all. And the last verse, look at Luke chapter 4, verse 18. It says, The Spirit of the Lord, Jesus is giving His first sermon, and He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me because He hath anointed Me The Holy Spirit is a person. And Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as He. The Spirit of the Lord. He. The Holy Holy Spirit is not a force. Don't buy into Star Wars theology. Because that's, you know, we Americans, we get our theology from the movies many times. The force be with you. The Holy Spirit is not an inanimate force. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune Godhead. And Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And all that He did and much more through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gave great attestation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But the greatest confirmation of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus Christ, that He is God manifest in the flesh, is that the Holy Spirit raised Him from the dead. And that's in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. You don't have to turn there. I have it on the screen. And this perhaps is the ultimate demonstration of what Paul is writing in 1 Timothy 3.16. That He is justified by the Spirit. Or that the Holy Spirit confirms to us That Jesus Christ is the Messiah. God manifest in the flesh by raising Him from the dead. By taking, He took our sins in His body and then He was buried. He died for our sins, but then He rose again because He had no sin. He overcame sin. He defeated death. He defeated sin. He's declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So He's justified in the Spirit. And then we see, letter C, this should be letter C, the contemplation of angels. He was seen of angels. Angels saw everything, didn't they? (laughs) Didn't angels witness the whole life of Jesus Christ. They saw Him in Mary's womb and announced His coming. They sang at His birth. They helped Him after His temptation and ministered to Him. They were in the Garden of Gethsemane with Him, strengthening Him. The angels sang at His birth and watched His life. 
the angels were there, and the Scripture was read this morning from Matthew 28, that the angels witnessed His resurrection and said, He is not here! He is risen! Angels saw that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. And then it was angels who were there in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus Christ bodily ascended into heaven and said, this same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen Him go into heaven. Praise God, angels saw Him. He was seen of angels. There's an interesting verse in 1 Peter where it says the angels have a desire to look into the things of the Gospel. And it's the same word that is used when the disciples ran to the tomb and looked into the tomb. Don't you think they were interested? They were like looking for evidence, peering into that tomb, seeing the grave clothes wrapped and placed where they were. That's how angels are so interested in the things of God. And if angels who are in the presence of God could have that kind of interest for the things of God, I said, Lord, give me that desire of the angels to see things and to peer into things and to look and to see. Because angels are certainly very amazed at the glory of God. And the verse in Revelation where Jesus Christ is about to take that book and open up the seals and it's, it's like all of heaven and earth is there where in Revelation it says every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as were in the sea, everyone that was in heaven and wherever they came from, they cried out blessing and honor and glory and power be unto the Lamb. That sitteth upon the, uh, be, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. That's amazing. In other words, the Lamb gets the exact same glory as the Father. Because Jesus Christ is co-equal, co-powerful, co-eternal. And as was said years ago by Athanasius, He's of the same substance, the same essence as the Father. He is one. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He is God manifest in the flesh, seen of angels. So we see in His coming, going back to our text in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see in His coming a celebration, a confirmation by the Holy Spirit. And we see a contemplation by the angels as they look and they see Jesus Christ and witness and watch and they worship Him. The second thing we want to see this morning, not only His coming, which was a celebration, a confirmation, and a contemplation, but we see next His conquest upon the earth, in a sense, over the world. His conquest, these last three statements to me, point of the great conquest. These lines emphasize the the victorious results of His ministry and his, His earthly life. It says He was preached unto the Gentiles. That is, after He ascended, the disciples were commanded to go into all the world and preach to the nations. Go into all the world. And it says He he was preached 
unto the Gentiles. And just, and I thought of just that one simple word is such confirmation of who Jesus Christ is. Because no one else is worthy to be preached throughout all the world to every soul who ever walks the face of this earth. No one is worthy of that except God manifest in the flesh. Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? He's preached. And it's by the preaching of the cross to them that are perishing is foolishness, but to us which are saved it is the power of God. It's by the preaching of the cross that Millions have been captivated by His godliness to live a godly life. It's the mystery of godliness solved by Jesus Christ. The preaching of the cross. Isn't it amazing, Paul writing this? If there was ever one who in his own flesh, according to his own upbringing and culture, if he was going to do what he wanted to do, do you think he would bring the gospel to Gentiles? He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He was Going to Gentiles would have been the last place he ever would have gone. But because Jesus Christ is the Savior, not just of the Jew, but of all men, Paul put aside all of his preconceived ideas and became what we would even call today the Apostle of the Gentiles. And he was preached unto the Gentiles. Colossians 1.23 is an amazing verse where Paul writes to the Colossians to continue in the faith grounded and settled. Don't be moved away from the hope of the Gospel which you have heard. And look what he says, the part that I have underlined there. Where was the Gospel preached in the first century? It was preached to every creature which is under heaven. Now, I don't know if Paul's speaking hyperbole there or literally. I kind of believe more on the literal way. In other words, in the first century, the world heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Could well be. But he was preached unto the Gentiles. Paul even says it this way in Romans chapter 15, verse 21. He says, so that from Jerusalem, round about unto a little... I won't move. I promise. Okay. Getting a little. Think of, think of that verse. Now, this is where you need a map. Can you put it down a little? This is where you need a map because how many of us know where Illyricum is? <laughs> okay, so Jerusalem is here. The land bridge of the world, the heart of the world, in Jerusalem, in Israel. And Illyricum is way over here. And that's an area, I believe, over 1,500 miles in a time when there was, of course, no easy traveling. And so Paul is saying that Jesus Christ was declared. His declaration that He was preached shows that He is God manifest in the flesh. And He's been preached ever since. Just to give a few examples, George Whitfield, the great evangelist in the 1700s, you know, he came here to America before America was founded as a nation 
Whitfield preached every day for months to large crowds of sometimes several thousand people from New England all the way down to South Carolina. Every day he would preach to large crowds of people and he would finish his sermons and say, Come, poor, lost, undone sinner, come just as you are to Christ. And that's still the message we say today. Come to Christ because He is God manifest in the flesh. Because the Holy Spirit tells us that He is God. And the angels saw Him and witnessed of even His resurrection and His ascension into heaven. Come, poor, lost, undone sinner. You need Jesus Christ if you're going to live a godly life. Because He is ultimate godliness. And Jesus Christ has been preached by all kinds of people through all the years. And they've gone to all different kinds of places of our world. Hudson Taylor went to China and Samuel Morris, a young man from Africa, actually came here to America and touched many hearts. John Jasper was saved as a slave in America and preached the Gospel for upwards to 40 years. Adoniram Judson was the first missionary who ever left the shores of America and he went to what is now Myanmar. And William Carey is called the father of modern day missions. And so many people have preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. D.L. Moody, an evangelist in the early part or the mid parts of our countries in the 1800s, they say he preached upward to a hundred million people before there was internet and television. And of course, many millions have heard the gospel. He's preached unto the Gentiles, and then it says he's received up. He's received or believed on in the world. Believed on in the world. His reception by the world. So He's preached. That's His declaration. The proclamation. He's preached, but now we see He's believed on. He's been preached, and many people have believed. Because what they hear preached, they say yes! And the Holy Spirit vindicates the preaching of His Word. And God uses the Word to draw men and women to who Jesus Christ is. And when He's preached, people hear that He died and was buried and He rose again and lives. So then people say, I want Him to live in me. I need this One to live in me because I cannot live a life that I want to live without Him. I want the abundant life. I want the joy-filled life. I don't want to live in depression. I don't want to live in doubt. I don't want to live in fear. I need victory in life. And this victory is through Jesus Christ. Great is the mystery of godliness and is solved in Jesus Christ how to live a godly life. Believe on Him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The reception by the world. Believed on in the world. You see, godliness, the godliness of Christ can be lived in us and through us when we believe in Him. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. And in 1 John, I'm quoting quite a bit from 1 John this morning. I'm so glad we're memorizing this book. Isn't it great to memorize even a whole book of the Bible in our, uh, in our church? 
But it says in 1 John chapter 4, where it says, and this was manifested, the love of God toward us. That's the same word, manifest. God was manifested in the flesh. When God was manifested in the flesh, His love was manifested. And this is manifested, the love of God toward us, because God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Hallelujah! We have His Spirit in us that we might live through Him, Christ in you, the hope of glory. His reception by the world. You know what this is a picture of, right? The great young missionary men who went down to Ecuador to reach a barbaric people. The Harani Indians. Jim Elliott. The pilot Nate Saint. Peter Fleming. Ed McCauley and Roger Udarian. If you've never read... Through Gates of Splendor by Elizabeth Elliot must read. Through Gates of Splendor tells the story of these young men and how they brought the Gospel and preached Christ to these Gentile Indians. And it was a great risk because they had never come in contact with other cultures and in trying to present the Gospel to them, ultimately, they were all martyred and killed. And yes, a great tragedy. But the story's not over. Because others went back to these same groups of people, the same group of people, and the very ones who, who murdered the missionaries became saved. They received the grace of Jesus Christ. Wasn't Paul a murderer? Wasn't David a murderer? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. His conquest upon earth. People believed there even in Ecuador. Those precious Indians. The last thing we see in this passage of Scripture as we see His coming to the earth and then we see His conquering upon the earth. He con- Jesus Christ is conquering through the preaching to the Gentiles when people believe on Him in the world. And Pastor Carmine prayed this morning. And it says, whatever you ask, God will do, right? And Pastor Carmine prayed that God would draw in souls into this place to hear the Gospel so we could be a witness of the love of Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful prayer. And I entered into that prayer. And I, that is our prayer of Heritage Baptist Church. That we're here to preach Jesus Christ. Every line in this passage is about Jesus Christ. I'm not preaching about you this morning. We're talking about Jesus. <laughs> and that's better than talking about us. <laughs> because if you want to solve your problems, look to Jesus. <laughs> He's the one who will bring you through. And then the last statement here of how to live a godly life, really how how we can overcome our own sinful tendencies and have Christ in us, the hope of glory, because He is ultimate godliness and His Spirit will come in us. It says He's received up into glory. Received up into glory. So we see His glorification into heaven. So we see His proclamation on the earth. 
He's, he's preached. He's believed on in the world. He's received. And souls are reconciled and born again. And then it says, He has been received up into glory. What does that mean? And it's interesting why this is put last. But that's how the Holy Spirit has structured it. Where is Jesus now? He's in heaven. Where is He in heaven? He's at the Father's right hand. He's at the the right hand of the Father. So what does that mean? That means He's conquered everything on earth. It it means that He has conquered the earth. And is He coming back? When is He coming back? Whenever He wants to. Soon. (laughs) Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We don't set a date for His coming. But He's coming when it is His time to come. He rules. That's the idea here. He ascended up into heaven. Do you know anyone else who could do that? I mean, I watch basketball. Don't, don't I, Nana? Yeah, Nana and I are basketball buddies. And man, some of these guys could jump. Woo! I, I like basketball. Just the, the athleticism of some of these athletes. Because I, I, I tried to play basketball. Believe me, I can't jump. That doesn't surprise you probably. But, <laughs> but uh, it's just amazing how they can jump. But they can't ascend to heaven. Nobody can do that on his own power except Jesus Christ. And that's why we say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, worthy is the Lamb that was slain because He was slain, but now He ascended into heaven. And now we live this life seeking to live a godly life by looking to Him. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. See Him with eyes of faith. See Him who is invisible to you, but with eyes of faith, we see Him. And as we see Him, we we become more like Him. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as He is pure. And so, because He's glorified in heaven, because He's ascended into heaven, we worship Him. And with eyes of faith, we look upon Him even now. And that's what we're going to do as we have the Lord's Supper. We worship Him. And He is being worshipped by every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and all the holy angels, even as I speak right now. Because He is worthy. So I say to you, are you lonely? Remember, He's God manifest in the flesh. Are you doubtful? Remember, the Holy Spirit has confirmed that He's the Son of God. Are you questioning? He is seen of angels. Are you bruised? He's the healing one. Are you confused? He is our peace. Are you overwhelmed or defeated? He is ascended. And you can seek Him and He will help you. And we're going to have the Lord's Supper this morning. But I want these six beautiful statements to be cherished in our hearts. Because, and this is where doctrine is important. And I'm almost done. But listen to what what I'm just going to say. Doctrine, these are doctrinal statements. But doctrine is essential to live a godly life. Believe this truth. And cherish these truths 
that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. He's justified in the Spirit. He's seen of angels. He's preached unto the Gentiles. He's believed on in the world. He's received up into glory. And as you cherish these truths, they will produce godliness in you because they will change the direction and the desires of your life so that you will desire to live for Him and give your all to Him. Let's stand together as we pray, please. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for your amazing attention and hunger for the Word of God. I sense it and I feel it. How many would say, Pastor Matt, I thank God for Jesus, that He is my God, manifest in the flesh. He is the ultimate godly one. And through Him, I can live out a godly life by His power in me. And that's my desire. To love Him, live for Him, give my all to Him. That's my heart. That's my desire. To love Jesus because He first loved me. Can I see your hand today if that's your desire? You want to love and live for Jesus? Put your hand up and just say, Thank You, Lord. Thank You for Your love. Thank You for Your power. Thank You that You were manifest, O God, in the flesh for me. And thank You that You are still being preached to the nations of the world. Hallelujah. You can put your hands down. How many would say, Pastor Matt, I'm not saved. I would like to know how I can live a godly life. I would like to know how I could go to heaven. I need Jesus as my Savior. I need to believe on Him today. Listen, many have. Many here have. Millions have gone before us and believed on Him. Will you believe on Him today? Don't believe the lies of this world. They're like the lies of Diana of old. No one's worshiping Diana anymore and no one is going to be following all of the crazy theologies and doctrines that our culture is promoting today. Jesus Christ is truth and Lord. Follow Jesus. How many of you say, Pastor Matt, I need Jesus. I want Him to save me and take me to heaven. Can I see your hand? Is there anyone like that today? Can I pray for you? Is there anyone like that? So now, Father, we just commit ourselves to You. Pray Your Word will never return void. We thank You that it won't. In Jesus' name, Amen. So let's sing together.